Our God is a missionary God, and we are His missionary people. You're listening to The Scent Life, the official podcast of the Center for Great Commission Studies at Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. Hey, welcome back to The Scent Life. This is the summer season, and uh, maybe you had a question. What in the world is God doing right now? And we want to open the window and let you see that this summer. Welcome to The Scent Life. Hey, Keelan. Hey, Scott. How you doing? Good. What's going on? Uh, you know, we're headed into the summer now, so it's things seem to be calming down a bit on campus. Yeah, that's good. You yeah. got your grading done? Uh, yes, yes. It's it's now finally finished because I had to turn it all in by now. There you go. <laughs> your students happy? I, I hope so. Yeah, well, I think so. They got what they deserved, right? That's it. That's exactly <laughs> right. They got what they deserved. Hey, so we spent last season dealing with uh, evangelism and uh, talking about the church and evangelism and, uh, you know, leading people in evangelism, tools for evangelism, resources for evangelism. We put a period at the end of that season, and mm-hmm. now we want to do something special this summer uh, that really helps our listeners get a glimpse into you know, what's going on around the world. Yeah, so if you've been tuning in with us for a while, what we're going to do over the summer is going to feel a little different, but it is definitely related to our normal topics. Uh, So we decided, since we take summers off, to use that as an opportunity to cover some content that wouldn't normally show up in uh, in a podcast series for us. Now, we'll be picking up again uh, in the fall with another series of The Scent Life that runs regularly with Scott and I. But over the summer, we're using this to do a mini-series uh, where we've pulled in the Global Theological Initiative Office here at Southeastern to have them talk to you about really the state of Christianity and the work of missions around the world and what they're doing uh, as far as that effort is concerned. That's right. So what we're going to do uh, this summer is we're literally going to hand over the reins uh, to a different host and co-host and take the scent life around the world. You'll hear from experts uh, in Asia, you'll hear from experts in Africa, the Middle East, uh, Latin America, about what God's doing. And so we want to introduce you to Dr. Anna Dobb and Dr. John Ewart as they take you into stories of the scent life as we glimpse God's work around the world. Hello and welcome to the first episode of the Scent Life Stories from the Global Church. This is Dr. Anna Dobb, Director of Special Projects and Partnerships at Global Theological Initiatives at Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. I'm joined today by the Associate Vice President of Global Theological Initiatives and the Ministry Centers at Southeastern, Dr. John Ewart. Hello, Dr. Ewart. Good to be with you today. Glad to have you. So, Dr. Ewart, I have a very broad question to to kind of get this going. Uh, what is the global church, and why does it matter? Right. The global church is often referred to as the church in what we might call the majority world, and that itself may be as unclear as what the global church is. So what we're looking at is the church around the world that exists uh, well beyond the borders of the United States of America. It doesn't exclude the church in the United States of America, but it's a more inclusive concept of what the church is worldwide. And often the focus of the global church is, would be those congregations and churches and leaders that are found in the majority world where, uh, uh, where Western missions and Western 
uh, efforts in missions are not only historically been a part, but they're still trying to be a part of what they're doing there. But that's not always the case. The, the global church exists in all the urbanized Western as well as uh, global modern cities and uh, third world countries as well. Great. Thanks for that intro. So global theological initiatives exist to think about theological and, and missiological strategies in training and engaging the, glo- the global church that you just talked about. So tell us a little bit about the history of global theological initiatives here at Southeastern Seminary. Yes, many years ago when I was serving in other capacities, uh, especially in our distance learning world, we had existing partnerships overseas in a couple of places. Uh, the largest one, the longest one, was with a seminary in Uganda. And we were training some of their leaders. At that time, they had to come to our campus and spend as long as nine months on our campus toward the end of their program in order to meet the accreditation standards for residency. Well, when distance learning came along, it shifted all that, and there was the opportunity to earn degrees completely online. And and it became apparent to us that there was an opportunity to train people in context and not only, not only in terms of the location of the training, but also in terms of the content of the training. So we really began to zero in uh, into much more of a leadership development concept. GTI probably has two or three major components. One of them is that we would walk alongside an existing entity somewhere overseas, and we would consult with them. We would uh, help them with their curriculum development, faculty development, even perhaps their physical development, financial development, distance learning development, all kinds of aspects of their entity. But part of that also might be training their faculty and actually offering certificates or degree-level training to help them rise up in their own ability to offer training, to rise up in their accreditation standings, or just to further help them become the best training center they could be where they were so that we could train up national and cultural experts who could actually train their own people and, in a sense, not necessarily need us anymore. Not that we wouldn't be friends or cooperate with them and try to help them, but in a sense, we're trying to rid this idea of dependency to where they're owning their own national theological educational strategies. The other thing we do is we create where nothing exists. So sometimes we're in situations to where there just is no theological educational opportunity. So we're creating things... Uh, in places where uh, we need to start, uh, sometimes on the basic levels and and move up from, say, certificate-level training on up. And then I think the third part, kind of a broader part, the general language studies uh, that we offer at Southeastern fall into our categories as well. So there are some programs in Spanish, will be programs in Korean and other other languages that are that are more public, that aren't necessarily just zeroing in on leadership development but are open to anyone who's qualified to take courses. So Global Theological Initiatives here at Southeastern is a little bit different than uh, the way that other schools have maybe answered the question of what's the relationship between Western institutions and the majority world. There are some specific missiological foundations and goals that you've put into this, to developing this program. What are some of those foundations and goals? Yeah, so part of what my burden is, um, after years of traveling around the world, spending a few years living overseas, is the idea that we need to train trainers. And that's a bumper sticker type of thing to say, but but we actually are serious about that. So so many of our cohorts are, in a sense, hand-vetted or, or hand-selected 
physician leaders where we work with a partner overseas. We're working together to find out who these people are. So these might be faculty members of a school, administrators of a school, executive leadership of mission boards or denominational entities around the world, so that we're actually training people who will end up training hopefully thousands of people. And so rather than us trying to do the direct training to the local pastor that might be in that country, we're actually trying to develop and train those teachers who would train generations of pastors in that country. And that may sound simple, but it's not. And it's, it's a strict process of, of working through admissions and understanding who the right people are in these, in these closed cohorts of leadership development to the point that even our syllabi would include contextualized um, application assignments to where not only are they learning this material from uh, from a bunch of Americans or or others that we we hire, but are they actually able to apply and teach this in their own context? And what does that look like? We've had cohorts where you might have people from seven different schools across Western Ukraine all in one class together, along with all the Baptist Union leaders of Ukraine in the same cohort, or. You might have a group of the executive leadership of the International National Mission Boards of Brazil, or you might have leaders from four or five different East African nations all in one cohort together who are then going to go back and run their seminaries and help their denominations and actually train people. So what we're able to do because of that is that we're able to do this at contextual pricing because it's a controlled population in those cohorts. Now, the other side of GTI, again, are those wide-open language programs where it's not the same to where, um, you know, the prices are different and the, the expectations are a little different. But in these leadership cohorts, that's how we would organize it. Good. So Global Theological Initiatives has four major initiatives right now, the Spanish-speaking initiative, an East Asian uh, focus, a Farsi program, and then a special projects and partnerships. How did you decide that those were emphases you wanted to pursue? I want to. I, I guess I want to answer that providentially is really the answer. Relationally, providentially, in the sense of, um, in the beginning, so much of what we were doing were based upon relationships that we had with either graduates or missionaries or others that we knew. Now along the way, uh, we've developed some intentional missiological targeting, and so for example, the fastest growing church in the Muslim world is the Iranian Church. They speak Farsi. And so uh, Farsi is primarily an Iranian and Afghan language. There are some other pockets of populations in other places that speak Farsi. So we've developed the world's only accredited theologically driven degrees completely in Farsi. We actually teach right now in about eight languages. I'm hoping to see 10 by the end of 2023. And you might also look at the fact that uh, the largest population of evangelical Christianity on the planet will be in sub-Saharan Africa. So we've had partnerships in Africa for many years. Uh, they are going to get theological training, and they need it. It's either going to be neo-Pentecostal or prosperity gospel or something more orthodox or hoping to be that orthodox place. And then, and then you think of in terms of like the, the fastest-growing ethnic populations he, even here in the United States, which would be Asian and Hispanic. And then one of the special projects that is really important to us is how do we train women in the global church? A uh, huge population, massive leadership potential and practice right now, and yet many women around the world just don't have the same opportunities for theological education as some of the men do. So how can we, how can we break in and help that population group to really be trained, not in high-level uh, high theological, hermeneutical 
and biblical studies. That's great. Thanks so much for the thought you've put into those missiological targets. So in your mind, what is a partnership? What's true partnership? And how does GTI, uh, how does the GTI strategy help us have true partnership? Yeah, and this is maybe a little unique, too, compared to what some, you know, and I want to be careful I say this. I'm not saying this is what everybody does, but so many, so many of the Western forward missions movements are about kind of how many students can we get, and that's kind of a goal. Um, and that's really not the ideal goal for us. This is a much more qualitative process than quantitative. So we want, we want to train the right people, and, and we want to um, make sure that these are people who understand their role in that rightness. In other words, they, they understand, and we're careful to explain to them, that they are cultural mediators and experts, and in a sense have to translate what they're hearing from us in these classes and apply them in that context. So a partner then needs to be someone on the other side that is in a, two, a true two-way relationship with us to where they are receiving this from us and, and not only the teaching part, but perhaps even the consultation part to help strengthen them as an entity, but they're also giving back to us. And this is something that I never want to, I never want to underestimate. Uh, when one of our professors, whether they're a full-time faculty member here on our campus or an adjunct that we're able to to hire, they go and they teach this incredible cream of the crop type of group. Uh, they come back impacted by that, and they come back and they impact our campus. Southeastern has sent out more missionaries to the International Mission Board than, than any other seminary in our denomination, and there's a reason for that. Part of that's a DNA, and this just feeds back into that DNA. Someone goes and they teach, and they, you know, they have this incredible experience in Chile or Brazil or Ukraine or Uganda or wherever it might be, and they come back and they're telling their students in class all about that, especially when you teach that kind of group. When you're talking about cream of the crop leadership, you know, you're talking about these leaders who are already impacting people. These aren't people who one day will be in ministry or hope to be in ministry. These are people who are up to their necks in ministry right now. And, and you talk about a group that wants to learn, and they, 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 they're like sponges, and they're, they're going to apply what they learn. So it's a really, really empowering and fruitful opportunity for our people to be blessed by that. And then these, we have prayer covenants together, and, uh, and we developed, you know, I, I want to call them fairly deep relationships with some of these people. These are friends and colleagues. We see them as partners in the fulfillment of the Great Commission. I do not believe uh, and I want to emphasize that. I do not believe that Americans alone can fulfill the Great Commission. We need to partner with the global church, help one another, and we have to work together in order to see this world reached. Amen. Thanks for that. So the the problematic side that can come out of partnerships is what we call unhealthy dependency. You mentioned this earlier. How does GTI's strategy help us avoid unhealthy dependency? Well, it's hard. Um, it's hard. And, and this is probably a constant conversation in my life and question in my life is, are we doing a good job of this or not? It's, it's frustrating to me to watch uh, how missions at times um, has operated in the sense that if, if all we do is give without any sense of accountability or expectation, then the expectation to continue to give is just never going to stop, and we're never going to teach independence, which is the opposite of dependency. 
So in our partnerships, we have several safeguards, I hope, that help us. One is we have an exit strategy. We, we will be done. Uh, we will not do this forever. This is not an ongoing, never-ending partnership someplace. There is a, a goal in mind to train certain people in certain ways to conduct certain consultation or to create something in a certain way, and then we will move on. And at that point, there's an expectation that we have equipped people to be able to carry on that work in a contextual, orthodox way. So from the way we do the training, again, even down to the syllabi part of it again, to the, the expectation that, that you need to know how to teach this, you need to know how to lead this to the point that you really don't need us anymore, you know, and you may want us and we still want you because we love you and we want to be, a part, you know, friends, but you don't need us. And part of what we do is there's never, uh, you know, the idea of ongoing payments and ongoing support for personnel and things like that are never a part of anything we talk about. We're, we do contextual pricing for a, a closed select cohort of people, but they are very much aware that this is a, a, a heavy scholarship and they have to maintain certain standards and expectations to keep that scholarship. And this is why we can't just have open, wide open groups for anybody and everybody to join. These have to be the right people. A line that I say, which is partially true, is I'd rather train the right 25 than the wrong 250. That's only partially probably true. But, but in, a, in other words, I want to train leaders. So we try to put safeguards in from the beginning. We try to have clear understandings of the purpose. We do all of this in writing, in a sense, with memos of understanding and contractual un- understandings and, and obligations. So I hope our listeners at this point have recognized that our Global Theological Initiatives is approaching the strategy a little bit differently than maybe others are. One of the jokes in our office, though, at GTI, is that we have a great strategy but a terrible business model. Uh, Why do you think that is, and what factors allow GTI to exist at Southeastern in the way that it does? And then also, what are some of the ways you try to mitigate those potential issues that come from such a model? Well, it is a horrible business model in the sense of this is not a model for making a lot of money for your seminary. Uh, With the scholarship pricing that we do, um, sometimes 100%. I mean, we we train in places that are difficult places. We train in places that are under communist rule. We train in places that are under Muslim leadership. And so we have situations where a student just could not pay us and then we have other places where they're, you know, 80 to 90 percent scholarship and those kinds of ideas. But again, that's why they have to be limited. They have to be the right people. And the only way that happens, you know, it's, it's two or threefold. One is we have an incredible president who believes in this. Dr. Danny Aiken, who is a dear friend of mine I've worked with for over 20 years, has a passion for the nations. And I am convinced that if it was not for his heart, and his, his desire for this to be our ethos and DNA, that obviously this could not exist. Uh, we also have some special people who offset some of the costs by the way that they, they give some donors and benefactors who believe strongly in what we do, and, uh, and they like to give to help support uh, our GTI program. And, and it's absolutely necessary for that to be able to take place. And so in the end, we hope that the kingdom investment far outweighs the earthly loss that we may be taking in the meantime. We do charge, you know, and, and 
in parts of the world, there are people who can pay more than other parts of the world, so there's not a standardized price for this. It's, it's, it's that complicated. You know, we work out each individual partnership individually and the pricing in the same way many times. And so <clears throat> we're looking for opportunities, um, you know, where people can pay, they will. And, and it's amazing because it's still a challenge for them. I mean, what we might consider very inexpensive is incredibly expensive for some of these people. So they're looking for sponsors, which, again, is why this has to be a limited group with a limited time frame. So this is a short-term experience for them to get through this and not a long-term burden for them financially. But grace is the answer, I think. <laughs> grace. Yeah. Sure. Well, thank you so much for introducing Global Theological Initiatives to us and some of the strategy behind it. I have one final question for you. One day, you're going to leave Southeastern. You're going to not be the Associate Vice President of Global Theological Initiatives anymore. What are some of the stories that you think you'll uh, remember the most from your time here? Well, that time may be sooner than I think, you know, the way my knees feel. So, um <laughs> Yeah, I think there's, the stories that I remember are the relationships, but also I think there are, uh, and it's much more boring to talk about probably, but there are academic achievements that I've seen to where you, you, have, these, you have these wonderful, blessed uh, moments to where you, you recognize, hey, this kind of actually worked, you know, where you have students who are writing, you have students who are leading uh, we have graduates who are leading uh, national Baptist unions. We have students who are writing textbooks in these uh, cohorts and and leading seminaries, leading some of the world's largest mission-sending agencies. And so you look at that and you, you see the investment. And then we just have some students who endure. And, and that's probably part of the story I'll always remember. I can't always mention where all of these students are, but they're in some extremely difficult places, and yet they can continue to persist and endure, and they're some of the most grateful students uh, I've ever been exposed to, to where they, they want this knowledge, they need this knowledge. If you ever hear anybody say to you that those national leaders don't need high-level theological training, you're probably not talking to one of the national leaders. You're probably talking to some Westerner who is there, who's telling you that, who already has a degree. Because I have never heard a national leader, and I've been to over 70 countries at this stage, some of them a dozen times or more, and I've never heard a national leader say they didn't prize this knowledge and this training that's going on and the fact that they want to pass it on. So I, I have wonderful relationships. You know, there, there are places where they're friends, they're family now, they're not just students. I was, I was looking at a picture just this week of one of our former students who started his own school on the border of Uganda and the Congo, and he had a room full of pastors he was training down there in the school that he, he works with, and he still teaches at the seminary that we partnered with. And so you just look at those moments, and you're thankful that there's a Second Timothy 2-2 aspect to this and that there's another generation who's training another generation, because that's all this is. This is just a niche of discipleship, a niche of Great Commission fulfillment, and we're just privileged to be able to be a part of it. Sure. Thank you so much, Dr. Ewart, for your time and for your heart for the nations. This has been The Scent Life, Stories from the Global Church. We hope you'll join us next time. Thanks and bye. <laughs>